Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday Special. Today we're joining some some great guests to have a chat about the week that was and possibly about what's coming down the line as well. We're joined by my co-host Vicky Conway. Tony Groves will be joining us shortly. It's Sunday, you know yourself. Well, I can't get out of bed. We're joined. By, <laughs> we're joined. You, by, you just couldn't miss the opportunity to slag him for that. <laughs> we're joined by DJ. We're joined by Harry. We're joined by Uruma. And we're joined by Vicky. And um, we will also have Amadula on during the show as soon as he shows up. And we will be talking about 9 11 with Amadula. So, but I'm going to kick us off. And I think we'll kick off. To, sorry, just give me one second. I think we'll kick off today with the Fina Fall week that was. And it was a hell of a week for Fina Fall. Uh, it didn't work out exactly how, how they wanted Uruma. What do you think of what the, the week Fianna Fáil had? You're a, a Fianna Fáil councillor, um, a pretty new councillor. I won't say span new, but you've been there a while. You've learned the ropes. What do you think of the week they just had? Well, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask now, because um, as you say, I'm, I'm Fianna Fáil. And um, I think I, again, I am, I always try to look on the bright side of things and, uh, you know, try and stay positive and stay optimistic. I I don't know if we had such a bad week. We had a um, housing for all bill out uh, during the week, which is positive. Uh, there was a good reaction to it. We had our thinking, which I think is uh, long overdue. And I think it's an opportunity since COVID for our parliamentarians to get together and, you know, mend, uh, rebuild, reestablish relationships and, and forge ahead. Um, and um, yeah, I don't think it's been too bad of a week for Fianna Fáil, if I'm honest. Um, well, I, I think the highlight was that Michal Martin is in the polls, is more popular than Leo Varadkar. But I exactly. kind of think that that's, uh, people feel sorry for Michal Martin having to deal with the bold child Varadkar and they just see this put-upon put uh, uh, leader. And I think that's that he, that's why he's seen the bounce in the polls. Actually, I'll come to to Harry uh, on the polls. Harry, what do you think of the polls that just happened? Yeah, it's been really interesting because we had two in one day uh, after not having any for about a month and a half. Um, wasn't what I was expecting. I was thinking a lot of the things that have been going on over the last few weeks would have had more of an impact, be it obviously the very high-profile stuff around Marion and Catherine Sapone, be it uh, within Finnafold, some of the sort of high-profile infighting that's surfacing again with John McGuinness writing a letter and you know doing what John McGuinness does, that's what he does, but not great stuff. Michal Martin also, I think, got quite a bit of flack for the way he handled the fallout. And then, of course, the there's been stories about the potential of rolling blackouts during the winter and planned power outages. Um, but none of those seem to have had a huge amount of impact overall in party support. Leo Varadkar's popularity has plummeted. He's fallen well below uh, the other leaders, but it seems to have been very much personalised on Varadkar. There hasn't been much of a... Uh, punishment seemingly handed out to uh, any of the government parties over that. There is a steady decline in Fine Gael support, but uh, as Rue mentioned, um, Fianna Fáil's numbers have been sort of trending upwards for a while, and that's still continuing to happen, sort of very slowly closing that gap between themselves and Fine Gael. Now, there's a long way to go there, and if you ask BNA, they're neck and neck. If you ask Red Sea, there's a massive gap in between them. That's due to methodology, one of them is face-to-face, -face, one of them is online, and that's to do with the age profile and breakdown of Fianna Fáil voters. But if you're fit of all, it's not it's not that bad. Like this could have this these last few weeks, this last month could have been reflected really badly. There have been struggles with leadership. There have been that sort of failure to sort of take control of the situation that's going on, and it's been sort of dragged out. And it's felt like Fine Gael have been leading them by the nose at times. But if that's not breaking through to voters and that's not being reflected in the polling, then you can't ultimately criticise the way they've been handling it. Because while we might disagree with it, or think it could have been done better, or say I would have done that differently, or I don't believe that was the correct way to handle it from a political, moral, strategic, whatever aspect point of view. The average voter isn't doesn't seem to be responding overly negatively to it, and I think a lot of what we've seen in the press and online surrounding that has been from people who already probably weren't going to vote for those parties anyway. So none of these things are actually sort of breaking through into that kind of mainstream average Finnafall Finnegale voter. Well, yes, we are seeing trends continuing, Fianna continuing to tick up. 
versus the others ticking down. Um, that hasn't, yeah, it, it hasn't really negatively impacted Finnafall. So on that base, I'd say if you can get away with uh, all of the chaos in government that's been going on over the last month and your polling numbers are still slightly higher than where they were before we went into the summer break, um, yeah, you, you, you'd have to argue that that's actually been, despite of everything, relatively successful for them. Why is there such a difference between the two polls, Harry? I mean, there's quite a spread, particularly uh, Fianna Fáil and the two polls. I'm going to stop the podcast for a couple of minutes where we outline to you why it's important we keep this project going. Over a thousand podcasts just between the Reboot Republic and the Echo Chamber. See Series like Police, which have actually helped change Gardaí policy. Conversate trans, which is trans people talking to trans people about trans issues, you know, um, built different, which is, again, people of color, young people coming in, giving giving their voices and we just get out of their bloody way. Um, we've we've helped launch other podcasts that are now going off. You see the two Norris signing with Acast. OK, they talked about their mentorship. No, none of that nonsense. We were just delighted to, to, to be able to help them to and, and help build that because collaboration is how it goes. But collaboration doesn't pay the bills. I don't want to be reading ads for, for um, Now TV. I don't want to be reading ads for saying recommending this mattress that I've no idea with. I don't want to have to do that. But we're bloody desperate at this stage, Martin, that we want to keep this thing going. Uh, yeah, look, the amount of work that goes into this is phenomenal. Tony puts a huge amount of work into it. And so does everybody who's doing the podcasts. Rory, uh, uh, Caroline, everybody puts in a huge amount of work. Go we do it go, for free. Exactly. We do it for free. Glow West has changed how sex is talked about in Ireland. That is true. Like Caroline has now got an article every Saturday in the in the in the Irish Independent, and we started out. We're now about eighty episodes into it, and it's changed the way sex can be discussed in Ireland. And I'm very proud that 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 my tiny little part of that, but the tortoise shack, more importantly, supported that vision from the outset. But it doesn't happen without support. It needs the people who can afford to do it to go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a cup of coffee. That's what it is. It's a fancy cup of coffee, okay? It's the one that you want that has an extra shot of this and maybe a, a flavor or something. It's it, but for five fifty, you get a ton of extra content because we we have to make it more lucrative, and that's just the way it is. We hate to say that, we, you know. We'd love to see the end of capitalism. That's that's that's, that's <laughs> yeah, the ambition yeah, here. It, but it doesn't. But, but look, remember the the the, the address you need. The, the website you need is patreon.com forward slash toward shack we let you go back to the podcast um, and we hope some of you will in the meantime have taken the time to to help us out yeah it it is a huge difference there and there's a couple of there's a couple of things for that i think the main one is and i have to speculate a bit here but i think the main one is to do with methodology so b and a do face to face whereas red c do online and if you consider kind of the age demographics you're looking at finifall would generally speaking at the moment aren't tremendously popular among younger voters, um, aren't tremendously popular among the type of people who might respond or engage or sign up for online polling. Whereas when you're going face-to-face, you inevitably will reach a, an older demographic because you're going to be talking to people who generally speaking will live in a, in a house, might not be in, say, a gated apartment complex like younger people will be. So I'd say the truth probably lies somewhere in the range between the two, in that sort of all probably doing better than 13%, but probably aren't two points behind Fine Gael. There's probably more of a gap there. But um, yeah, that, that's the key thing. It's small things like that that make a difference. And it's kind of, I know it's confusing and frustrating when you see polls come out that say such radically different things. But in a way, it's actually kind of useful because it seems to me like they're reaching different groups of people. And you know that's why I sort of take averages and look at how they go across them and try and sort of work out where it's moving on a rolling basis. Because if you look at one point in time, and you'll see this like with the in the front page of the the I think it was the Sunday Times who did the BNA poll where they were like, oh, Fianna Fáil are you know just behind Fine Gael or Similarly, the, the Sunday Business Post saying, oh, Sinn Féin have overtaken Fine Gael for the first time in the Red Sea poll, which would be very impactful if Fine Gael hadn't lost to Sinn Féin in the last election. But you can only take uh, one single snapshot for what it is. You have to sort of take all the data and look at it and say there are certain things that certain pollsters will find that other ones won't and kind of work at, try and work out where the where the truth lies in, in the middle of those things. So I think that's the, the main factor. Um, between the two that we're that we're seeing, we're seeing more of the more younger people. I think more online people, more digitally engaged people, captured under Red Sea, whereas BNA are going house to house and doing face to face and kind of taking in um, a more settled, shall we say, uh, generally older demographic. And then they'll wait to correct that, but there's only so much waiting you can do 
when you've dealt with people in different circumstances. Vicky, you're you're you've been up north, as we say, and you've lived up north. Sinn Fein doing particularly well at the moment, both north and south. Uh, what's yeah. your impressions there? I mean, it's interesting when you take the fact that last Sunday we were talking to Emma D'Souza about the possibility of or the likelihood of a Sinn Féin first minister next year. Um, and then to see the Red Sea poll with Sinn Féin in the lead, it's um, some of this seemed unimaginable, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It's amazing the shift that's taken place. But I was wondering there, as you were talking, Harry, about the like the extent to which recent events maybe haven't had the impact on the polls. Is that a question of people not thinking it that seriously or, which is my own view, that like no party would do it any differently? Like this cronyism, this leaking, all of that is completely endemic in Irish politics. Um, I have to say, in part, I'm, and I, I think Martin and Tony would disagree on this, I'm not one for firing anyone over this because I think they're all doing it. Um, and, you know, that the, the, the real focus right now should be how do we fix Irish politics rather than who do we make the fall guy for this? I think that's probably true to an extent that there's so many people who are just, you know, they're all the same, aren't they? Um, is the belief. And that's, you know, that's not not true. Of course, there are many good people in many different political parties who have, who have who would say they would do things differently, but that's the machine. It kind of captures people into this. People go in with good intentions, with a plan to do things differently, and you kind of just get caught in this sort of roiling mass of this is the way things are done between appointments, between how the government interacts with the civil service, how the parties interact with each other in government. I think we've seen a lot of that, and I do think there's a degree to which people do think differently, and I think part of that, part of the rise of Sinn Féin is that there's a belief that they'll do things differently, but I think there is a limited number of people who believe that, and they probably already kind of moved over there and now you're kind of fighting over the people who will be like well what are you what are you actually going to do that's fundamentally different to that so i do think that's a, a very i think that's interesting on this particular point like particularly where you talk about things like foi and openness and transparency because a lot of people would have concerns certainly historically around Sinn Féin in relation to that very issue i think that's a strange one though vicky do you not think that the the current state of FOI and the current state of affairs that it's the government parties who are, are, for want of a better phrase, making shit of, of access to information and that it's not, Sinn Féin have no hand act or part in that. No, no, I, I suppose I'm just making like a correlation between perspectives on kind of political openness and transparency. But actually the FOI thing, I think it's probably more down to civil servants, right? Um, and yeah. how that has been controlled internally than any individual political party. Uruma, sorry, I keep pronouncing it wrong and you'll have to, you'll have to correct me and forgive me. But what do you think now listening to others? Do you think Fianna Fáil are, are kind of in the ascendancy again and that it's Fianna Gael that are on the decline? Um, well, uh, like you see reflected in the poses, it's really hard to call this. But personally, I think um, the party is is building itself up gradually. And uh, an important way to get it it's, is to make sure that the issues that affect uh, the public are brought to the fore. And we saw there uh, Minister Stephen Donnelly make the announcement in relation to um, the menopause support for women. And these are the key issues that are affecting people every day. And as long as we continue to focus on that and uh, the likes of housing with affordable housing and uh, social housing and the promise to look at the, um, the income level levels to, to uh, be eligible for social housing, I think we will continue to build up on what matters to the people. Um, I can't comment on, uh, on, on Fianna Gael and uh, I, I, I choose to just um, focus on Fianna Fáil and just in relation to, um, to what Vicky said, I, I, I totally agree that, you know, the system, the, the, the work practices need to be looked at and things need to be improved so that, you know, there won't be a recurrence or else we'll keep looking at uh, motion votes of uh, motions of no confidence all the time, because when these issues arise, it's, it's an opportunity to look at the process and, and improve it and make it, you know, watertight so that these, uh, um, these leaks don't happen or these, uh, um, uh, issues don't don't come up, and it's it's more than to just pick a scapegoat and say you're responsible. Uh, 
and um, that's more what we need to what we need to look about in terms of Finnafall. I think we're growing um, in the party, and you know the consistency is what we have maintained as well since uh, the coalition government started in focusing on the on the issues that matter and making sure that we're coming out of COVID and we have an economy that will you know sustain long term when every when hopefully come October when all the restrictions are taken out. On the last last note on, on these polls, uh, going forward, the, the, the vote of no confidence. Vicky, do you think that that's worth having? Um, I think if it potentially pushes a discussion on the issue, then that can be useful. Um, but my, yeah, I think there's a genuine question on whether it's distracting from other matters. Harry, your view on the, the upcoming no confidence vote? Um, look, I... I'm I'm in favour of it. To be honest with you, I think these things are important. They're part of the process that we have. They're part of the uh, one of the very few ways that the legislature in this country, which is extremely weak, can actually hold the executive to account. Um, I think it's a good thing from that perspective. And I think and uh, sorry, I think uh, it will be very interesting to see how a lot of the Finna Fall people who've been making a lot of noise, the likes of Barry Cowens, John McGuinness, Mark McSharry, um, and so on, uh, handle this um, because there is a question and a genuine question is: Are the Finna Gael people being treated differently to the way Finna Fall ministers were um, when they did it. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a distraction. Um, I don't think it's a distraction any more than any other thing the opposition brings, because anything the opposition brings is going to be rejected by the government. I think it's an important part of our process. I think when we talk about transparency and accountability, I think votes for no confidence are a part of that, albeit a minor one. Um, so yeah, I think it's right to go ahead, and the outcome will be decided by the by the door, but I'm very interested to see how the uh, more rebellious members of Finna Fall and of the Green Party as well, to be honest with you, because they've also making noises um decide to handle it yeah i think it could be very interesting particularly on the feel of fall end if you wanted to have a coup that's the time to have the coup inside the party you know there's enough of them there it's quite but we'll see um you know loyalty to the leader in Fina, in Fina fall has always been huge i'm going to move us on vicky there was some sentences came out during the week and um, there was a woman who was suffocated or almost uh, suffocated and uh, the sentence was a suspended sentence, and yet the same judge gave out a harsher sentence during the week for a, a, what we would consider a lesser incident. What are your feelings on all of this, Vicky? I mean, I'm not trying to describe it as a lesser incident so much, but you know, we take a woman, her husband, uh, a previously convicted murderer in another country, so he had a very high level of criminal background, which is something that is taken into account in sentencing. Um, and you know, he in a sustained assault pulled out clumps of her hair um, and pushed her head down into the bed to the point where she was suffocating. Um, and you know, when the police arrived, like hair was falling off her head. Um, so quite serious injuries in that respect. And then on the other hand, um, in a burglary case um, where a knife was used as a weapon, um, which again is considered an aggravating factor, um, apparently quite small. Um, pokes with a knife it was described in the paper um and threats were made of um taking eyes out um sacrificing him and so on um one from you know the, the previous case received a suspended sentence um and the other received six years with the last year suspended like enormous variation in sentencing um from the exact same judge um in the same district down in Cork um and you know you just really wonder about like <laughs> what do women have to go through in domestic violence in order to access justice um and you pursue so much and we have huge problems in sentencing in Ireland and we know this and like it might really surprise people but we have no official record taking of sentences in Ireland. You might think automatically a sentence is handed out and it's like entered into a database and we know, but no, this doesn't happen. And in fact, in the last few years, there's been a few different efforts to try and find ways to um, record sentences, but like even official methods have literally involved putting someone sitting in a courtroom to record the sentence and what and the factors that are stated as impacting on that sentence. And that's how the judiciary themselves have been trying to look at this. So Ireland has set up um, under the new Judicial Council, one of the arms of that is a Judicial Sentencing Committee. Um, but it has commissioned research on how do we start to collect data? 
Not even what guidelines do we bring in? Like that's down the line. So we are so far from seeing, like we are at least six or seven years before any guidelines, before we might start to think about seeing consistency in this space. And that's really problematic. Yeah, it is very. Iruma, what do you think of this? Do you think that there should be something more fast track so that at least there is some consistency in sentencing? Absolutely, I I fully agree. Um, I think I I'm, I'm shocked to to learn that uh, there's no um, data gathering like that's you would imagine that's as the basic um, requirement for for um, dealing with cases. And uh, I totally agree. I'm not too familiar with the with the with the stories and the sentencing, but just to hear the disparity in the in the sentences given given it's just. Um, it's it's uh, <laughs> mind numbing that um, you know, and the attitude towards uh, domestic violence cases really it it needs a lot of uh, um, a lot of attention. And I think again, that's another thing the uh, the pandemic has brought to the fore the absolute uh, suffering that uh, that women go through. And I think in terms of you know, it's such a basic thing to to gather data and to look at how it can be done like just look at other countries that are doing it that's what you but do like and so- we have a huge part like you mentioned the strides taken in the pandemic and there have been and you know i think even over the last five years we have a lot more women reporting sexual violence and domestic violence but we have a real problem then if they're then thrown into a system that isn't giving them justice through sentencing. Like, why put yourself through all of that if the offender is only going to get a suspended sentence? Um, I tweeted out earlier a really good open access article that describes the system that's in place in Ireland. But it's, you, you know, it's it, you you create this risk of pushing people backwards because they won't trust the system if that's what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what's happening in a lot of cases. And it, it reminds me of um of uh people from migrant background that go through um you know discrimination and racist abuse and you know people are reluctant to go to the guards with it because just of the, the attitude and things are not dealt with decisively. So people feel what's the point? Why prolong the agony of the experience by going going through it so that's really something that needs to be looked at we need to have firm punitive measures to put people off you know committing these crimes and then to give people the confidence in the system to come forward when they have these experiences so absolutely you know waiting seven years is absolutely not acceptable and uh, these things need to be fast-tracked and we've seen a couple of um, um, decisive measures taken in in some cases so where there's the appetite where there's the um, the need for it they know how to fast track. So this is something that needs to be fast tracked in the in the justice system to have the data gathering and to have consistency in, you know, put in, in giving these uh, these uh, uh, judgments in these cases. So there isn't a huge disparity and, and people don't lose faith in the system, which is so important because, you know, I'm thinking of countries where there's absolutely no regard for the law and we don't want that to happen here. So um, I'm just and in, it, like in it comes it comes back to the same points about accountability. Right. I mean, like just even thinking about the fact judges in criminal cases are given that power to send someone to prison, to deprive them of their liberty and how they do it and why they do it. We're not even taking note of it. But there's no sense of accountability for ensuring that you're using that extreme power in justifiable, fair, legitimate, proportionate ways. Um, I just get more angry the more I think about it. And it's understandable too, Vicky. I mean, it's a long, long time with the same problems which are unfixed. But that brings me on to another set of problems which remain unfixed. And DJ will will bring you in on this. Slaunch care, we've had two high-profile resignations this week on Slaunch Care. Basically, we're told it's going nowhere, nothing's happening. Um, and it's this is down to money, this is down to will, this is down to a government that doesn't really have an interest in Slaunch Care. Is that a correct analysis, DJ? I, I, I think it's, it's, it's very correct, Martin. It's very accurate. I think when you look through the history of 
<clears throat> Slange Care, how it came about, the, the Slange Care report the cross, that got cross-party support in 2016, um, it, it looked like there might be some progressive movement towards universal healthcare in Ireland, which is badly needed. Um, and then we, we got the Slange Care implementation plan in 2017 that, that, if implemented correctly, would have gone a long way to address a lot of the issues in healthcare in Ireland. It wouldn't have been a silver bullet, but it would have gone a long way to address a lot of the issues. And it was decided by an Oireachtas Health Committee um, it was uh, in, in and around that time that the, the remit for the implementation of Slange Care and the funding of it would be the government of the day. Um, and we saw straight away that the, the um, I suppose, the, 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 the ideological opposition that's within Fine Gael at the time, um, basically when there was an, a surplus of 600 million needed in the health budget for the Winter Action Plan, at the, I think it was the end of 2018, um, we, we were told that basically the Slange Care implementation uh, budget for the following year was, was being spent on that instead. And that attitude towards Slange Care and the implementation of the Slange Care plan has persisted throughout uh, from the, 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 the Fine Gael government backed up by Fianna Fáil to this uh, uh, coalition, three-headed three coalition of, of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens. And it, it was made abundantly clear last summer when the programme for government was being devised that Slange Care was not a priority, despite the fact that we were in uh, a, a global pandemic that were, were public health care and access to, to public hospitals was, uh, the, 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 the real need for that in society was highlighted. Um, we had a, a Green Party TD tell members that basically Slange Care implementation would cost a billion a year and the money simply wasn't there for it. Um, that, that same TD put out a social media um, uh um, uh, infographic that had implementing Slange Care on it, just to highlight the absolute hypocrisy of the current government stance on Slange Care. They will say that they are doing it, but behind closed doors, they're just saying, we don't want to fund it. It's too much hassle. And I think what we have now is we have a really precarious situation in healthcare. And I think this is where the frustration for healthcare providers is re really um, boiling over into uh, resignations. We had the Slange Care Implementation Advisory Committee. Some of their members uh, made a statement saying we need urgent clarification from the minister as well on the direction that Slange Care is going uh, during the week. And, and I think what we see here is we've seen the, the pandemic has caused basically a big slowdown in things that, that are the day-to-day -day taking over of a healthcare system, diagnostics, etc. We are still treating a, a very similar volume of patients, but we're getting diagnostics in cancer, cardiac care, diabetes at later, more advanced stages. And I think what we're going to see going forward and why this is, is incredibly concerning for me is we now have a, a population that is going to get a, a raft of diagnoses over the next five, six, seven years that is delayed compared to when it would have been. They're now going, that's going to need more advanced care. That's going to need longer care. That's going to need more complex and more costly care. And when we're not reforming healthcare, we're going to get this uh, culture from Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens of, well, the, you know, the excess costs for, for, for the pandemic, which you're going to label it as, is going to be X, so we can't fund reform. And ultimately, unless we do the two of them in tandem, you know, the waiting lists are going to get longer. The number of people on trolleys are, are, are quickly returning to what they were. The waiting list is bigger than it was. Yeah, it's considerably, it's considerably bigger, but it's also a political issue in that, yeah. you know, if you're looking at unification of Ireland, you can't have a, a fifth-rate health service compared to the NHS. And I'm not saying the NHS is perfect, but they have it up north, and we don't have it here. And it's a huge factor in reunification of Ireland. What do you think on that one, Vicky? Yeah, and I mean, like me or Martin, you know, he was on the radio last week going on about how, you know, enhancing healthcare will be one of the beneficial outcomes of the pandemic because we've seen how much we rely on it and how we need an agile health service. Um, and so the budget will be increased going forward. And I just think like, you know, to, to be hearing that that members that were appointed to do this job ask for certain changes to happen, department says no, these people then leave, like which sets the process back so much because you're going to have to go out now and find new people to take over those roles. They're going to have to get up to speed. It just delays things so much because the department was just saying, no, we're not doing that. And it's it's so frustrating to watch from the outside. 
Amadula, as a as a person who who's come came from Scotland to here, and you have the NHS there in Scotland, is it a big factor for for people coming from the UK to Ireland? Um, I I I I don't know how. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, gotcha. I don't, I don't, I, I can't, I can't speak for 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 others, but you know, I, I've I've always found, I, I found the healthcare system quite confusing here. Um, when you go to the doctor, how do you go to the doctor? What do you have to pay them? How do you make an appointment? How do you actually register with your GP? And um, touch wood, I've actually been in good health since I've been here in 2015, so I haven't really had to get really into the thick of all of that. But I've just found it very, very confusing. Like you know, I've um, I, ha- I had a I had a colleague who got um, extremely ill um, when when I when I joined the university, and she sadly passed away. And she was from the UK, and I kind of got an idea a little bit about um, how 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 the system works and how different it was from the UK. But um, yeah, I I still don't understand it. What I continue to be flabbergasted at is that um, many of the physicians and doctors and surgeons in our hospitals are actually Pakistani and Indian, except we never hear from them, which I find absolutely shocking. With all the talk about healthcare, we never hear from them. We have whitewashed it completely. And I have, and I've, you know, during the pandemic, where this was the time where you could have actually brought in so many diverse voices and brought in so much more, we didn't get that. And I just sat there and I thought, this is, this is really, this is actually, it's quite unacceptable because I speak to many um, individuals who work in, in hospitals um, and, and they just, they said, well, we've just, we've just kind of accepted it. And you, you know that there is a, there's a, there's a very interesting and complicated hierarchical system uh, to keep some of them out from certain jobs and certain promotions, etc. So it's, I think it's 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 very complex and 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 quite uh, complicated, and I don't mean to say that as a as a you know as a dismissal, but I think it, it's um, it requires um, a lot more focus from all of us and a lot more questioning. And I just want I just want to I want to hear from Black Asian minority ethnic physicians. I want to hear from them more. We hear from them in the UK. We've heard from them in 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 in, um, in Scotland. I mean Hamza Youssef, um, the, the health minister. I mean love him or loathe him. You know he's he's still somebody who looks like me. He's still somebody who I look up to. You know, so I think there's a lot, there's a lot to kind of think about here. That's a really good point, and it is a really good point. Do you think that there's a reluctance to speak out, or is there a fear of speaking out? There's, I think, I think the the, the folk that I speak to who um, who work, who have positions, they're tired. They're very, very tired. They're like, why, why would I even bother? Like, you know, I, I, you know, we talk about changing faces. We talk about changing, you know, the the, the power dynamics. I speak to so many people, and they're like, why would I even bother? We've, you know, in, in Scotland, there's a there's a there's a huge discussion about why are our schools, why are the school head teachers all white? And I speak to my sister as a teacher. I speak to teachers who look like me. They say we don't want to get involved in that. It's just an absolute political cesspit where white people are basically taking up so much more space so it's it's a complicated it's a complicated state that we're in where you know you want you want to change the power dynamic but many many of the people that I speak to they're like a man we don't even know why you have all this energy to speak up on this we don't we just want we just want to do our day job and just kind of go away and enjoy our weekend and sadly they numb themselves they numb themselves to all the microaggressions and all the crap that they have to put up with. And it is just absolutely heartbreaking. There's not a single party, uh, and I mean a party party, that I've been to where Black Asian minority ethnic have not come up to me and said, I heard you said this uh, in, in the media. You know, this happened to me, that happened to me. And it's just sad. Every time that I have sat in a taxi and I've spoken to a taxi driver who looks like me, who speaks like me, they come up with exactly the same stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really sad. And 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 what's even more sad is that people people don't have people don't have the energy to speak out anymore. It's interesting thinking, like I'm really taken by that. And when you think about how much focus and energy we're having to put into just even like getting the church out of a maternity hospital. Like the conversation is just so far removed from the reality of healthcare in this country. And as you say, like these, you know, BME um, healthcare workers that I say have put up with so much crap, particularly in the last 18 months. Um, and that's a, a really a real side of healthcare that we need to be thinking about in Ireland. I'm, I'm really, yeah. yeah. 
And language is really important. I keep saying this. I brought this up two or three times in an academic setting this week. Language is so important. Fluency of language, who is speaking, who gets to speak, how are we putting words together? It affects because psychologically we've been trained to switch on and off when people say stuff. I mean, I've had so many people, I've had somebody say to me once, oh man, you can say whatever you want out of your mouth because you've got that Scottish accent. And you sit there and you're just like, seriously, I could talk absolute crap. And you could be sitting there going, oh, I love the Scottish accent. And sadly, on the on the other side of this, there's so many important and people who are doing really, really good work to keep our Irish system in place, who we have totally ignored, who we just we just expect them. Yeah, just, you know, sign us off, give us give us medication, you know, look after us in the hospital. But we don't really want to actually look at you. We don't want to humanise you. We don't want to kind of get involved in all that. We've got white people to do that who can come up with much more uh, colourful, flowery language and who can who can dress up well. So I think it's just it is it's it's just the way that it is, you know. They're really good points, DJ. You know, a, when, when you look sorry, at Slauncher Care. Sorry, go ahead, Harry. No, just just to come in that very quickly with Aman saying, because it's, it's a minor thing. This is, I think, I don't think all of what you're saying is 100 percent true. Is that this is also a thing for the that Irish, you know, people who think themselves as native Irish or white Irish or whatever, don't even doesn't even cross their mind. They don't even think about it. It's it's normal, it's backgrounded. And there's this, this sense that it's um, you know. Oh, we're not we're not racist. We don't have any of those problems. There is no problem with racial inequality. There is no problem with these people in inverted commas in in Ireland. And interestingly, um, in the in the BNA poll that came out, they did a sort of a breakdown of people's priorities. They asked you to put first, second, and third what their political priorities were, and racial inequality was one of those. And very, very few people put that in their top three. Uh, in fact, <laughs> this might be weird. Nobody from none of the people polled from Labour or the Green Party put that in their top three, and that might be a bit surprising to those groups. But there seems to be there's very little awareness of the problems of racial inequality, of racism, of injustice and discrimination in Ireland. Most people just don't even think it's a problem. And I think that speaks very much to what you're saying. The people who are on the receiving end of that are are tired. Um, don't you know? Aren't comfortable bringing it up? Feel like it's not worth the time and the backlash they'll get. And I think that then you have this pervasive sense of, well, if nobody's talking about it, it's not a problem. I'm not a racist. I've never heard about it. I've possibly never even met a person from minority background outside of you know maybe a, a medical context. And yeah, there's a huge miss there. Um, and it's really sad that the kind of the people whose voices we need to hear are, and quite rightly and understandably, are like, I'm not. I'm not comfortable talking about this. I don't want to. I'm tired. I've got my life to live. So, Like we yeah. saw that this week even. So the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission have come out and said that there is a problem of racism and policing um, and that we need to be gathering data on ethnicity and stopping searches. And now it wasn't an official response, but senior Garda sources said no evidence of Garda discrimination. Um, when in fact, and we've done podcasts on this, there is 20 years of evidence of racism against black people, against Muslims, against travellers against you know all the all descriptions of people who have come to Ireland who live in Ireland um, and yet the state says the very state that refuses to capture the data that would actually give us absolute certainty on this is saying nothing to see here um, and I know there's comments in the chat about like looking at you know Bimbo and Anoga, um, uh, her death, and, and of course, Savita Halapanavar. There is so much evidence of racism in the healthcare system. And if it's happening to patients, undoubtedly it's happening to staff as well. Yeah. Just if I can lend a little to what um, a man has said, which is absolutely correct. I think you saw me nodding vigorously there as he was speaking. Um, if we look at the pandemic and how communities have responded to it, there are cohorts that have absolutely had no regard for the guidelines and you can easily see what communities feel left out feel left behind time and again and so they feel why should I bother when nobody bothers about me and he highlights the importance of getting people in I, I share your sentiments absolutely on you know working through COVID and the faces we saw at the at the head of the table talking on the different um, TV programs. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, is there no, um, no doctor from the migrant community? Is there no experts? Is there no um, uh, virologist or immunologist from 
you know, um, other communities? Why aren't these people being represented? And these issues are going to continue down generations if we don't pay attention, if we don't fix it. I think the reform goes beyond slunch care. I think the reform should expand into the civil service. I worked six months in the civil service and I just like... I take the train two hours to Dublin and come back two hours and I'd be raging on the train. Like I spend four hours a day to do very little at work. And, you know, there is a lot of reform needed. Is is the will there? Because we seem to talk so much about this, that and the other. We pretty much have the formula. We pretty much have a template. We just need to get into action. And I suppose, you know, all the talk about you know, the vote of uh, no confidence. I feel those things are a distraction because there are issues that we really need to focus on and distracting with these other um, issues. They are important, but I think there are things that are more important that we need to focus on and we shouldn't let those important issues be drowned away by the Gate and, and all of that. And, you know, the government should deal with that absolutely by you know, reform it by looking at the system. We had VoteGate a couple of years ago. Maybe I shouldn't even mention it because that involved Fianna Fáil, but that highlighted an issue which they started working to fix. So it's 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 very important to look not look at the people involved, but the system. Why is this able to happen? How do we prevent it? And that's how we start fixing because we're getting distracted by people and what they have done. But why have they been able to do it? We need to do a root cause analysis. We need to look at slunge care. Why do these people feel that they have not been heard? What is the solution and why can't we implement it? Why is it costing a billion? If we look at the value stream um, on, on that process, I'm sure there's a lot of waste we can cut out and save money. Those are the things we need to be looking at to make these important changes because, you know, I want my tomorrow to be a lot better than today. So what I'm focusing on is how do we make it better as opposed to who is doing what and what and, and what are they doing and get them out of there because somebody else is going to be beset with the same system that's not working and they're going to have the same issues. Tony, welcome along. Nice yeah. to see you, buddy. That was uh, that was uh, anyway. Look, the mir- the miracle of modern medicine we're discussing, and and we my my eldest has just received her second vaccine. So there you go. But um, anyway, um, wasn't was I? I'm late to this, guys. Was Northern Ireland raised as, yeah, a, as we, a point? Yeah, we raised Northern Northern Ireland and the NHS point. and the um, fact that yeah, yeah. you know, because we I know there's a lot of people. You not trust us it. to do it? Oh, uh, it's not that. It's just that well, it was, it was put to me by one of our good listeners and 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 people saying that. Uh, from the north saying well, you know need to discuss this but i also think um it's a it's important look you know um in in, in the context of 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 Solange care it's very disappointing again you know i think myself and rory spoke to one of the key founders of Solange care over four years ago on one of the first reboot republic pods i think it was the the fourth or fifth episode we ever did and we were still no further along um I, I I am conscious time, and I know we wanted to cover. Uh, yesterday was the uh, anniver- the twenty year anniversary of nine eleven, and I know a man you're you're going to talk about it first. But can I say something as well? I don't know if it was raised either. Um, today would have been Don Foster's birthday, so I'm sorry that I, I'm sure you guys maybe have said it before I came on, but I. Uh, Don was my friend and a friend of the Tortoise Shack and she would regularly contribute to the Sunday shows and I don't have any profound words or any words of wisdom other than to say I miss her very much and I just wanted to mark that as it, today was her birthday so uh, I'm sorry for doing that as I came no, in No, I think I, all of us at the Shack and, and you know the Sunday special in particular um, she's very much missed so yeah. it's important to mark these things Thanks uh, Aman, I know you wanted to discuss the 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 anniversary of 9-11 and the, through the context and through the eyes of let's give that brilliantly as you do things your erudite cogent way give us your your view through that muslim prism if that's okay well i mean y- you know yesterday was september 11th i i, I actually had had set aside yesterday thinking i was going to be uh, grading a phd for um, um uh, an institute in india and, and, and I, I i i couldn't do it i spent most of the day actually sitting watching a lot of the the, the the anniversary stuff that was on on the news and it was just it was absolutely heartbreaking and you know it's it bring it takes me back to the Islamic traditions which say when you kill one person it's like you've killed an entire um you, you've you've killed you know humanity you've killed everybody and and it was just absolutely kind of 
you know, ridiculous to hear, you know, that the, the only voices that I kept hearing were from the Taliban who were saying stuff like, oh, this was a holy war and this was jihad and this is the way it is and Islam allows this. And I just thought, gosh, you know, on the one side, you know, Muslims like me have been so triggered and, and kind of so, um, you know, heartbroken about what happened on that day. And we all remember and we all recalled in our WhatsApp messages, et cetera, what it was like. Um, on September 11th, you know, um, and and yet we're still we're still also being consumed by these sound bites and that are taking us back to 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 kind of the, the Islamophobia that we've had to deal with for over uh, 20 years. You know, 9/11 was a time where I think it it it, it once again defined in the psyche of individuals who Muslims are, the monsters that they are. And we have a long history of how we have been programmed to think of Muslims, the Arabs, the East, right back to what we understand from uh, cartoons such as Aladdin uh, about chopping off the heads and stuff like that. So I think that that I think was was once again kind of brought brought forward. And I think what it did was on the outside, it made people think, you know, these Muslim monsters, um, and on the inside, it allowed Muslims to then, you know, to uh, treble their efforts to try to say there are alternative theologies. You know, there, there is a different way to be Muslim than this very barbaric way. It's too easy to say that Osama bin Laden and his ilk are not Muslim. But what we are saying very loudly and very proudly is that just as uh, we give Jews and Christians uh, the validation and the, the the opportunity to say that there are different denominations and there are different theologies. Muslims have not been given that, and for the last twenty years, Muslims have been have been reduced um, to, to to one. I think it started to an extent, if you look historically, with the satanic verses with the Salman Rushdie affair, because there was Muslims, oh, they're burning books, and now they're actually, you know, they're 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 smashing planes into towers. So I think all of this. Was has 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 brought up a lot more um, pain um, and and kind of soul searching in in amongst this very sad moment about individuals who who died uh, during September the 11th. And again, it brings together all the heightened security and the securitization of Islam. I'm starting my introduction to Islam course here at UCC on Monday, and I know for a fact that I will have students walking through that door who will want to talk about. Islam and terror and how Muslims are monsters and they want to kill us all. It's very hard for me to then say to them, let's switch. And I want you to think about a queer Islamic theology because they're like, what the hell are you talking about? This is not how my mind is programmed to think about Islam. Why is that? And I think we, are, we have collectively failed in our understanding of minority communities. And we continue to do this. And it goes back to how we, we create monsters of entire communities, of entire countries. You know, this country is good, this country is bad. I mean, I still am baffled when I tell people my parents are Pakistani and I'm very, very proud to be Pakistani. It does something in people's brains. It makes them think about something else. But whereas when my closest and dearest friends who are Indian, when they say, they're like, oh, India, you know, um, uh, the, the, the colors, the smell, Leo Varadkar. I'm like, how is this happening? How is this possible? How have we constructed our psyche? So I think all of these things are connected. And, and the, more, the more we talk and the more we challenge and the more we counter, the more, the better we'll be in a in a better place because it's not about silencing. It's not. I think I still say this to my students. It's too easy and simplistic to say they were bad Muslims and they weren't Muslims at all. They were Muslims. They 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 upheld what they understood of Islam and Judaism, Christianity, and Islam has a long history of understanding just war theory and what it means to have crusades and what it means to have jihad. But what it also means is that we have to look at alternative theologies, at alternative ways of living that are peaceful, that are building bridges, that are colorful, that are queer. And that takes a lot more effort. Um, I just I, I want to go back even further, though, because when you talk to about 9-11 and say how we created monsters of the Muslim um, countries, Muslim people, and we, we created those. 
we've done that for for decades, if not centuries. Amal, I think of um, T. Lawrence's book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, where it was fairly clear, you know, that even in that, that the systemic racism of how the Arabs were. I think of um, U.S. presidents when they decided that they needed Israel on side. Um, I, you know, at the as we were emerging from world wars, where they decided that the that the Muslim population were actually referred to as um, and in. Woodhouse, I think, was the, the, the quote, and, and I'm going back to one of John Schwartz, who contributes to the podcast, one of his pieces where he referred to the Muslims as savages. So, you know, it's that dehumanization process, and, and we carry it out today, and we still watch, and we have to understand the profound um, evil that took place on, on 9-11, absolutely. And we, we acknowledge nearly 3,000 people lost their lives in, in most horrendous of circumstances. But these, we also have to remember that these are what uh, Aaron Dahi Roy um, calls lifestyle wars that have been continuing for for decades. So people like me, uh, middle class white men, who can 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 say, well, this sits into nice categorization and doesn't. Um, I can be comfortable that that war has been outsourced and they're still flying through Shannon and they're doing and they're bombing in Afghanistan and we're okay with it. But it keeps because I can get a I can get a nice. Um, uh, pumpkin sp- spice latte in Starbucks so it feels all the better for it I, I, I would, you know I, I, I you know what really got me and it sometimes it's it's very interesting personal stuff that kind of gets you in these situations when the names were being read out there was a gap they, uh, well they, there was somebody who who died in the towers whose name was Amanullah and my name is Amanullah and, and my name in Arabic means protected by God and I I I, I was like Oh my gosh, I just I just couldn't I just couldn't understand. It was just I was trying to understand, you know, the the, the name and and God and and it was just and this is it sounds like a Muslim I'm assuming that this guy was or you know this person was Muslim and it was just it was just absolutely heartbreaking to think about, you know, all these these are our role models. These are our role models that 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 we that that we can't even glorify. I'm sorry, but you know we you know because we've got this idea in our head of what we do when we think of particular names you know it's just I just find it I just found it really really painfully sad at so many different levels um and I I I felt as a Muslim that I wasn't even being accepted to be a part of that mourning process that in some way I was to be seen as somebody outside of that that yes sure you're saying you're sad and that this is but you're but you're still suspect you're still suspicious to us and that is that tears me. That just I I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm totally <laughs> ranting here. But no, I, no, no, no. I, I think it's really important that that it's like as we think of the the people who's never had their voices heard, and we think of like the first person killed after George Bush's speech about you know we're going to come and get them was uh, I think it was a, a Sikh. Um, person who someone just went out and decided that they wanted to kill the first brown person they could see to, to take revenge, and you know there was an indiscriminate murder, and and those all of that just goes on and on, and, and but the simple narrative was you know um, the, the, this was these these were pariah states. Look, there's so much to unpack with this, but but can I ask you one question? Do you think in over the twenty years? Do you think we that 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 has started to actually unravel those simple narratives and those simple um, aspects of and how it's and how it's reported? I, I think to some extent we're getting a little bit more nuance, but uh, you know, racism, Islamophobia, homophobia, anti-travel—it's not rational. It's not logical. People make up their minds just on how you see somebody. Like I brought this up the other week when I was profiled at Dublin Airport. And I honestly, I have flown in and out of Dublin Airport, Cork Airport. I have flown a lot. I'm not going to do it anymore because it's, the pandemic has made me think about my carbon footprint. But I really felt, I, I really tried to give this, um, this officer the benefit of the doubt that he was not profiling me. But I really felt profiled. I really felt, and it was because of my name, it was just... I just thought, oh my gosh, I feel absolutely helpless. And, you know, I get introduced in such a wonderful way, head of department, he's the chair of this. And, he, and I felt, my goodness, I felt absolutely helpless. Not that any of that crap and any of those titles mean anything, but it just made me think, wow, I feel like the many, many Muslims 
who can't even go on a podcast, who can't go on their twi Twitter and put out a tweet. And I had, you know, I had the national media the next day saying, could you come on and talk about this? And I said, no, because I was busy doing everything else. But I thought, what about the immigrant, the asylum seeker who, who doesn't have the capability of going on Twitter, who doesn't have the platform to do that? What the hell are we doing to them? And I mean, we, we, can I just finish on one last thing? We had... A, such a lovely moment this week with the first ever Black Miss Ireland. And we totally have ruined it. I feel, I'm sorry to say it in that way, but I read on Sky News the backlash that Pamela Uba has received in terms of racism. And I felt sick to my stomach. We need everybody to be raising and rising up our immigrants, our individuals who don't look like us. But don't think that this is an Irish um, illness, you know, the, 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 look at the backlash that uh, Radha Kanu, who just won the, the US Open, is receiving. I mean, you know, all you need to do is look at the front page of the of the UK's Express, which says, oh, we need to get the migrants out. Yeah, let's celebrate uh, Radha Kanu, who's won the, the US does, Open. Does, the, the Times today compared her um, to, uh, can, can be as popular as the Kardashians was the phrase they used. I mean, if you want to take, talk about echoes of racism, othering and, you know, demeaning um, her sporting achievements, wow. I mean, and that's that's the times that that today, uh, Aman, and I found, you know, and I know you sent me the, the thing where, where, you know, you have Nigel Farage talking about Im immigration and then wanting to uh, celebrate a half half Chinese, half Romanian, uh, Canadian born, uh, raised in the UK. And, and then but we want to diminish it. So, yeah, it, it's it's not just an Irish thing, but it certainly is something that no, it's not just an Irish thing, but we are really bad at accepting that it is a thing. Like, and you know, we were saying this earlier, we're very quick to say we're not racist. We don't have a problem with racism in Ireland. Sure, we're the friendliest nation on the planet. Um, so like there's a difference in how it plays out and we need to step up to that a great deal more. It's about language as well, Vicky, because what I'm hearing from, from my friends who are Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, a lot of them are like, oh, we don't want it. We don't want a challenge this the, the white power we we want to kind of keep it nice we want to say oh we love it here it's so nice and I'm just like I, I'm sorry I I was going to swear there I'm not allowed to swear I was like I, I grew up in Toonheed in Glasgow I I do not have time for this I am not offering some sort of extra thing by being here you know I'm I'm paying my taxes and I'm taking I I am teaching the next generation of Irish students I'm taking up place I'm taking up space. I am not going to, you know, just sit there and say sweetly that, oh, by the way, thank you very much for having me. But sadly, it's to do with power. I have the privilege and the power to do that. Many, many of those of our, of our new immigrants and individuals, they don't. And they're afraid to say that. And what often comes out is then Ireland saved me. Thank you very much. You're so hospitable. I'm sorry, I've, I've taken up so much. Not at all. F fabulous. DJ, you wanted to make a comment. Yeah, just just on all that, I think you know what gets lost in 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 all this is that like Pam, Pamela Uba is not just Miss Ireland; she's a medical scientist with a master's degree from Trinity in chemistry. She's been on the front line in Galway University Hospital throughout this pandemic, uh, contributing to society in an incredible way. She is a, a tremendous woman and an example to all of us. And it's like what what the, the killer is and 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 I'm touching it so brilliantly earlier about healthcare workers and <clears throat> healthcare workers from a minority background who 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 face challenges on a daily basis and and you just need to look at the the campaign that Moshin Kamal had to it, it has ongoing um and, and has been consistently trying to to, to develop with minister Donnelly, etc i just think we we have these excellent people who who come into ireland contribute so much to our society and the treatment that they're receiving is, is just wholly unacceptable. And I just want to commend uh, a, a man and, uh, uh, for, for speaking so so eloquently and passionately about it, because as I said, I did, like we were talking about this earlier and, and I was really glad it didn't come back to me when we were talking about healthcare because uh, I'm a white person in a position of privilege. It's, it's Moshin and Aman and, and Rumu who we should be listening to on these topics. They're the prevalent voices. And I think like fair play to, 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 to Shaq for giving 
Um, Stop, would you? Don't, don't let's not go there. I just want to say one, one really, one really profound thing. A little great comment by Sam in, in the in the comments saying a man is correct. He 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 does not add to society. He is society. Uh, and you know, and again, so Sam is another regular on the, on, the, on the tortoise jack and 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 another voice who are, who we will be coming back to soon. Harry, I wonder, did you want to make a comment because I know anti-Semitism often gets uh, gets. How do I put this? It's acceptable still in many ways, and how it's how it's carried on. and And I know you rail against it, um, but but you're 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 a great man for po- pointing it out when when even in the mainstream we don't spot it often enough. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. It's, it's different in a way, um, or similar in a lot of ways. And that I, I I'm not like you know a man of room. I people don't necessarily look at me and know who I am and know that I'm from an already background or whatever. Um, so in that way, it's. Uh, I don't want to say easier, but there is a certain level of I won't get profiled at the airport. I won't immediately, you know, if I were to become, well, I'd say Miss Armand, some kind of high profile thing representing the country, people wouldn't immediately know to pick up on my background and then try and weaponize that. But I think one thing within this I think is really interesting that the man said um, was about the idea of, you know, the how how we talk about it and how we say that's not Islam, that's not Judaism, that's not my background. One of the things that I find very interesting when um, I do, somebody says something or I'm talking to somebody and it comes up, you find yourself immediately having to defend who you are and your culture and your background from all these preconceived notions people have in their head. And that makes it so difficult. And I think this is, again, strikes more to people who perhaps, again, it's visibly obvious who, who they are and where they come from, or not even obvious, but visibly can be assumed because sometimes people get that very, very wrong as well as with some of the, the, the Sikh gentlemen who, who's spoken about the, about the number of Sikhs who were attacked after 9-11. But you've had so much time on the back foot that you, you have to present a sanitized version of who you are and what you do in the conversations you have. And that leads to this, oh, I'm so grateful to Ireland because you want to be the model minority. You want to be the good person who's just grateful. And everyone says it. And, you know, in people, it's and sometimes, oh, you know, I'm only joking, or oh, you know, it's just banter. I'm not taking it seriously. Your first instinct is to say, yeah, sure, okay, because you don't want to have that fight. You don't want to fight that battle. And again, I can. I'm in a position to do that. I've been very lucky. I've been published in newspapers doing so. But there's people from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, from minority groups, from you know, travelers, uh, people from from Africa, from Asia, from wherever they come from, who don't have that opportunity, who are in a position where they do, do just have to say, yeah, that's not me. They don't represent us. And then. The conversation we have in our own communities, there's a very interesting article by um, Anshel Pfeffer a while ago, uh, who's a, a British um, journalist who works in Israel, about how, you know, as Jews, we say, oh, uh, homophobia and, you know, anti and Islamophobia and bigotry and discrimination against um, the Beta Israel, uh, all of that, oh, it's not real Judaism. But it, it is. It's part of our culture. Like we, you know, there are ugly things and good things to every group, to every background, to every culture. But we can't have those conversations and we can't talk about those things because we have to spend so much time projecting and presenting ourselves as being perfect because any flaw that's picked up on then is used to justify bigoted and racist behavior. And it's really, really difficult to kind of walk that line because you don't want to be having to sanitize things. And I'd actually say Israel's a very good example of that. I don't want to have to defend Israel because a lot of what it does is completely and utterly indefensible. But sometimes you find yourself having to intervene in these conversations because it's going down in a direction where by acknowledging those things and accepting things that are true, people then balloon those into things that aren't true and take on, you know, anti-Semitic characteristics. And I think that's very true again when a man talks about Pakistan. Um, that's another case where people you say, you know, oh, I have criticisms of Pakistan, the country, and then the people, the the religion, the races that are there all get caught up in that, and it just balloons into it. And it's very, very tough, and it's a really hard burden to have. Again, and I think more so for people who don't look like me because I can look Irish enough to get away with it, um, that they have to take that burden on themselves. And I think that's one of the things that just poisons it. And again, people don't then end up conceiving of themselves as being or doing or saying racist things because sure art shouldn't the aren't these people all very grateful that we're here we've given them the opportunity and i think that yeah that cuts across all, all groups from, from don't North. we don't don't we love don't we love to be told how great we are harry you know we love to be told how great we're like like Uruimu, we, we gave you the opportunity to be the first you know um person of color female counselor tell us how great we are Oh, you're absolutely crazy. You're <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> uh, no, but in all honesty, like obviously, like uh, like Harry articulated there, there's always good and bad with every uh, with every community, with every group. And unfortunately, as we're having with Zapone Gates, the bad is always magnified. And, you know, but 
it's justified when it affects people and it affects their living standards. And this situation, in the likes of 9-11, is an example of a situation where we should absolutely focus on the individuals responsible because they took an individual decision that had an impact on, on humanity. You know, so it's it's not um, something to do with Muslims or the Islamic religion. It is individuals who took a decision and you could nearly tie that again back to societal issues and, you know, making people become extremists because you look at the anti-vaxxers, it starts somewhere and it starts to build up this animosity, this hatred that, you know, escalates into people um, committing acts that are, you know, um, that makes society gasp like, you know, but it is down to individuals in cases like this. And it's absolutely unfair to generalize a whole community to say that these people are this and the other because of the act of, of a few individuals. Like if you think of the Islamic population around the world, it's huge compared to the number that are committing these atrocities. So it's absolutely not all right to say Muslims are bad or or the Islamic religion is bad. Like look at, you know, Ireland and the things that have been linked to the church, but we're not condemning, you know, Ireland to that degree as well, because we are able to, when, and, and it goes down to the will, when the will is there, we're able to channel our thoughts and channel our actions accordingly to suit ourselves. So we just need to be mindful of the humanity of the people next to us. And if all we all act with empathy, we need to unlearn a lot of things. And I have to say the media is absolutely irresponsible in cases where, you know, they trigger the public so much and then they're just waiting to report on what they've triggered people on. And um, I think it was during the um, some of the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, this journalist rings me and says, oh, do you have a comment on this? And I asked, you haven't wronged me to ask me about, you know, COVID-19 and what's going on. I have professional qualifications as well. Like, why are you only ringing me? Where is something mm -hmm. bad that has happened to somebody from the African community? Like, I'm not just, that's not all I am. That's not all I'm capable of. And I don't want to, you know, only be on the media when something bad has happened because it affects the mindset of the African community, of African children, because they only see people like them in the media when there's something wrong. So, normally they're going to progress that way if they want to get a shot at the limelight okay i only had to do something bad so we need to be mindful of how we especially um, um media houses and journalists how they target people and look at how they trigger like even you know i use the porn gig now is by no means acceptable what has happened but the way they dog these uh, parliamentarians to look for words and then they pick on the words and then they put people against each other and it's the society that suffers because again like i said we are getting distracted from big issues and if i just might mention like you know i'm originally from nigeria and in nigeria we have both you know muslims and christians coexisting in one country and it is possible and not everybody that is Muslim, that is um, Islam, is bad. And we just need to be mindful of the way we communicate and just to make sure that we are, you know, engaging and giving everybody uh, the benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to live, you know, normal lives if people choose to. If somebody chooses to be bad, absolutely we throw, you know, the book of the law at them. But if people choose to be good, to throw the actions of somebody else at them is, is you know, soul destroying and is absolutely unacceptable. That's been a great show. And I think it's a great place to leave it. And I look and Can I, I see throw one thing in. Sorry, Perfectly. just to say this Thursday at 2.30, there is a gathering at the Dole for the family of Terence Wheelock. Um, it is the anniversary of his death um, this week. And the family, as we've talked numerous times, um, are still seeking justice um, and probably not seeking enough justice as far as I'm concerned. So if you're about 2.30 at the Dole on, on Thursday, sorry, just wanted to get that out. So I'm just going to wrap there and say, look, we'll stay on for questions afterwards but it is really great to sit down on a podcast with men with women with people from the muslim faith the christian faith the jewish faith and to have a really good conversation about it all and of course vicky's dog is gorgeous thank you all for listening and we hope to see you again next sunday <laughs>